0: Welcome to Public Policy This Week, a well-rounded weekly discussion of policy issues that frame today's
1: American experience. Good morning. It's Friday, and you've joined us for Public Policy This Week here on KYMN Radio. Public Policy This Week is dedicated
0: to the honest and open discussion of public policy issues. Each week, we take a look at a specific policy subject, and we have guests on the show who are experts in the field. My name is Rich Larson. I'm one of your hosts for this morning's show, and sitting next to me is Chris Chapp, my co-host.
1: Our show today is on academic freedom. Academic freedom is a central concept in the world of higher education, but recently a number of high profile cases have pushed the issue into public consciousness and the policy arena. A few examples. Four days ago, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis signed a bill that limited the subjects that could be taught at public universities in his state. Earlier this year, protesters at Stanford Law School disrupted a speech delivered by a federal judge, and closer to home, at Hamlin University, a professor was dismissed for teaching material a student deemed offensive.
0: Our guest today is well-equipped to help us think uh, through these issues. Stephen Poskanzer was the president of Carleton College from 2010 to 2021, where he continues to serve as a professor of political science and president emeritus. But even before his work at Carleton, Poskanzer distinguished himself with a long career in higher education, administration, and law. In addition to leadership roles at a number of public and private institutions in higher ed, Poskanzer is widely regarded as one of the country's foremost experts in academic freedom. He is author of Higher Education Law, The Faculty, published by Johns Hopkins University Press, and also regularly serves as a co-host on Public Policy This Week. But today, we are pleased to welcome him as our guest.
1: Stephen Poskanzer, welcome to Public Policy This Week. Thank you for joining us in the studio this morning. I'm sure it's a busy time of the semester for you. It is, and in fact
2: I actually teach an hour after we're done with the show. But Chris <laughs> and Rich, it's great to be here with you. And obviously this is a topic that is very close to my heart. So
0: you've been you're you've become a very good friend of the show, Steve, on, on both sides of this table. So we really appreciate you being here. Um Steve, entire Volumes have been written on this topic, academic freedom. But I was hoping that maybe you could help uh, help us by by just walking us through the basics.
2: What is academic freedom, and why should our listeners care about it? Sure, I'm partly guilty for writing some of those (laughs) volumes. Um, Academic freedom, at its core. Is the notion that in order to discover the truth, to develop a deeper understanding of a world around us, that scholars and students, but especially scholars, need to have the ability to follow their thoughts wherever they lead, regardless of whether that annoys conventional wisdom or standard authorities, but that truth will out when you can fearlessly and zealously go where your mind tells you you need to go.
1: And historically, where does the concept of academic freedom come from has it Has it always been a part of colleges and universities? I, I know we've we've discussed a little bit that early on, the American Association of University Professors played a big role here. But but in more recent decades, academic freedom perhaps is been guided in different ways at different institutions?
2: It's a really ancient concept. It actually goes back to medieval times before modern universities began to take their form. There are famous stories about Galileo running afoul of the church Mm -hmm. and being, you know, imprisoned in his home Mm -hmm. for talking about how astronomical bodies moved in the world and Giordano Bruno (coughs) was executed for exposing ideas that went against the teachings of the church. But modern conceptions of academic freedom really begin in German universities in the Mm -hmm. 19th century. German universities were the first places to really propose and advocate and celebrate research by faculty members. And the notion that developed in German schools was that faculty especially needed to be free to follow their ideas wherever they led. In the United States, in the late 19th century, before U.S. universities started offering doctoral programs, many American scholars would go to Germany and study at Heidelberg or Berlin and then come back to the United States. And having seen this model of scholar professors free to go wherever their thoughts wanted them to go, that idea began to get translated back to the U.S. It typically becomes part of the standard you know background of american higher education in the okay. early 20th century there <clears throat> emerge a variety of controversies at the turn of the century where professors who were following this German model and opining and writing on subjects that were very controversial in the day, Mm -hmm. union organizing, immigration, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, federal or government regulation of private industry began to seriously annoy trustees who themselves (laughs) Mm -hmm. were kind of those vested interests. Famous legendary stories of, you know, Edward Ross, who was a professor at Stanford University, writing about things that really annoyed Jane Stanford, who was the sort of the driving (laughs) trustee of the university. And he was fine for that. Mm-hmm. Wow. And as a result in the early 20th century, a number of prominent academics, John Dewey, Arthur Lovejoy, uh, Seligman came together and said, we've got to establish this notion that faculty should be free in the United States to pursue their their scholarship wherever it drew them. And that's where the American Association of University Professors, sometimes called the AAUP, was born.
1: And, and since uh, since You know, I know there was a famous statement in 1940, a UP statement that that still guides a lot of universities to this day. Um, But really since that time... Um, academic freedom, is is it right to say that it's evolved in different ways
2: uh, at different universities? It most certainly has. You know, there actually was a 1915 statement, which right. is the progenitor of the then mm-hmm. 1940 statement. The 1940 statement is especially important because it was signed not just by the AAUP, but by an organization then called the American Association of Colleges that represented the leadership, the president's trustees of major academic institutions in the country. So that it was a joint statement that everyone bought into made it very important. But, you know, that's now 80 some years ago. And since that time, academic freedom continues to evolve and it takes a different form at both public and private universities. And I know that's something that we'll talk about it a little Mm -hmm.
1: bit. And and for our listeners, um, a lot of times academic freedom probably erroneously gets lumped together with the First Amendment and freedom of speech. At large. Um, could you? But the, the, the concepts are still related at some level. Could you, could you walk us through and, and help us distinguish those two ideas uh, for our listeners?
2: You bet. Absolutely. I think academic freedom and First Amendment free speech rights are very different from each other. They serve very different purposes and goals, although there is a little bit of overlap between the two. Let's start with academic freedom, which is what I've been speaking about. The purpose of academic freedom is to enable scholarship and learning. Mm -hmm. And so to achieve that goal, uh, you know, there is a certain level of autonomy and independence and, you know, again, freedom that faculty members and students, we'll talk about their rights in a few moments, need to have. But the fundamental goal that academic freedom is designed to achieve is to lead to thoughtful data-driven, rational, reasoned discourse through which we will discover a better understanding of the world and the human condition. The First Amendment, which of course is part of the United States Constitution, is meant to serve a very different purpose. It's about political discourse. It's about freedom in exchange of ideas that will lead towards a better functioning democratic government, and maybe sometimes it's also about what Justice Holmes sometimes referred to as the marketplace of ideas, but again, always with better and more effective self-government and an engaged citizenry in Mm. mind. Academic freedom by its nature is meant to promote discourse that is scholarly, thoughtful, rational, very inclusive because that's how you discover the truth. Political discourse protected by the First Amendment is meant to be fractious, raucous. You know, the speaker's corner at Hyde Park in England. This is the (laughs) multitude of tongues through which our democracy gets stronger. Is there a little bit of overlap? Yes, particularly at public colleges and universities in the country, and we can talk about why. But fundamentally, they serve different goals. Academic freedom is meant to achieve a scholarly outcome. The First Amendment is meant to achieve a democratic polity.
0: Well, that was actually my next question too, is that because uh, the First Amendment uh, limits the
2: ability of the federal
0: government to quiet things, uh, or the state government freedom for that matter, is there a difference between what you can do at a public university versus a private institution like Carleton or St. Olaf?
2: There most assuredly is. Now, at a public institution, and that would include a state institution or even a local community college where mm-hmm. a county might take the lead in that, you are bound by the First Amendment. The government cannot make laws regulating speech. Policies that limited speech would violate the First Amendment. At a private institution, academic freedom would be protected by institutional policy, which technically then often would become part of the contract between a faculty member and the institution. If you have a policy protecting academic freedom, it would ordinarily be included in your faculty handbook. Mm -hmm. That handbook has the force of contractual law behind it. At a public institution, you'll also have a faculty handbook, so it's kind of a double barreled protection of academic freedom. You have both the contractual rights to it that you would have Mm -hmm. at public or private, as well as that additional First Amendment protection. But as I know we'll talk about a little bit later on, the relevance and the importance of that First Amendment protection is especially acute the farther you get into sort of the broader public citizen debate, you know, mm-hmm. on the pages of the newspaper, on the streets of, you know, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and so forth.
1: Tenure is one key institution um, in thinking about academic freedom protections, and um, Could you maybe walk our listeners through that? Sometimes tenure gets maligned in the media a little bit for maybe protecting quote unquote, bad professors. Um, but it exists for a reason, and and it's closely connected to, to this idea of academic freedom and free inquiry.
2: Sure is. To my mind, tenure is an essential linchpin of academic freedom. But let me step back and talk about what tenure is. Tenure is basically a form of job security, mm. that as a professor, after you have proven yourself and met the standards of the institution, tenure is a protection that you cannot be fired except for good cause and for a certain specified reasons. There's no lifetime guarantee of job. If you steal money from the university, if you behave in a predatory way towards students, if you commit research fraud, if you are incompetent in your teaching, tenure does not protect you from those kinds of things. And I think it's also important to remember that different forms of job security exist not just in the academy, that are very much similar to tenure. If you work for a law firm and become a partner in the Mm -hmm. law firm, you have a kind of job security. If you're a medical doctor and you're a part of a medical practice group, Mm -hmm. that Partnership agreement protects you, too. Civil service workers have job protections. Public school teachers have job protections. Tenure is the type of job protection and job security that's evolved in academia. But it's particularly relevant to academic freedom because it is one of the very best ways to ensure that if you're a teacher – and especially if you're a scholar and you're pursuing a topic that is going to shake up things, disrupt industries, annoy the powers that be in society, make students question the things that they already believed, if you're bravely and fearlessly following ideas where they lead you, you're not going to lose your job for doing that. That's what tenure is meant to do, and that's why it's such a critical ingredient in a robust system of academic freedom it is the best protection that pursuit of ideas for scholarly purposes in the most thoughtful rigorous highest standards of the profession peer-reviewed scholarship you are not going to lose your job because you're brave as a scholar
0: as the non-tenured or non-professor in the room i have to ask you do uh, non-tenured professors
2: have the same sort of protection a non tenured professor would still be protected by the academic freedom policy of the university. So, yes. But, you know, when one is still going through the process, mm-hmm. there is always a risk that a junior scholar may pull their punches or be a little less willing to take on conventional wisdom because they don't yet have tenure. That's why the balance is if you do your job right and you get tenure. You're even more protected. But, yes, a junior scholar is absolutely protected by the doctrine of academic Just
0: freedom. Just out of curiosity, can that work against a junior scholar? I, was, I would think sometimes you need to uh, flex a little bit of your uh, academic freedom rights to, uh, to, to get to the point where you're considered for tenure. As a general rule,
2: mm-hmm. scholars should be brave. Okay. You should... Lay out what you believe is right, okay? And if that ticks off someone at your institution and hurts your chances for tenure, if you're right and you've come up with a better idea, you're going to end up being recognized for that and you'll get tenure at a place that's even better where they value (laughs) your work. Um, But there's always, you know, intra-institutional and personal dynamics with any job. Yeah. walking your way up through the, the ranks. Um, but academic freedom should make it a little bit easier for junior faculty. I'm going to so write I'm,
0: that down as a general rule. <laughs> scholars should be brave. I like
2: I, that. I, I I believe that, too. That.
1: Well, and, and I, I would say as, as somebody, and I maybe I'd like to think of myself as brave, but as somebody that went through the <laughs> tenure process not too long ago, um, uh, you know, I do think there's always that little that little voice in the back of your head still that, that wonders, boy, how is this going to be received by the public? How are others at my institution going to? And, and tenure really helps quiet that voice.
2: Mm. So. Mm-hmm. And tenure also makes it easier for senior faculty members who have tenure to be zealous defenders Mm -hmm. of a junior faculty member who doesn't yet have it. So the notion here is you've got to prove yourself as a great teacher and as a great scholar and often as a good citizen of your institution. But once you have achieved that, once you have demonstrated over typically six years Mm -hmm. that you are here and real, then You should get tenure, and only for a real serious cause should one lose their job.
1: All right. You're listening to Public Policy This Week on KYMN Radio, AM 1080, FM 95.1, broadcasting from downtown Northfield, Minnesota. I'm Chris Chapp, and my co-host Rich Larson and I are talking with Stephen Poskanzer about academic freedom on college campuses. So far, academic freedom seems to be maybe somewhat non-controversial, but this isn't always the case. Stay tuned, and we'll talk to our guest about specific debates that play out in this arena in higher education and public policy more broadly. Welcome back. Uh, Stephen, your career is obviously informed by your tenure as president of Carleton, but your career and expertise spans decades, and you literally wrote the book on higher education law, titled Higher Education Law the faculty. (laughs) Um, It makes me wonder how academic freedom cases play out as a legal matter. Put differently, this is a public policy show. Academic freedom issues play out in the public sphere in all sorts of ways beyond college campuses, from disputes about contracts to unions Um, Could you mention why our viewers should care about academic freedom beyond the walls of a college campus?
2: Absolutely. If you care about the role of education, and especially the role of higher education in our society, and you believe that colleges and universities can be a great source of new and important ideas, that generate new industries and create new medical procedures and pharmaceuticals or generate new ideas that help us think about the world in different ways, you should care about academic freedom because academic freedom is the best way that we have developed over the last thousand years of encouraging Universities to play the role that they can for society. So a healthy society has healthy universities in it. A healthy democratic society certainly has universities that play that role. And one of the ways that universities themselves become healthy and can achieve their goals is the academic freedom and the independence and the bravery, as that's a word we keep mm-hmm. using today, mm-hmm. that scholars need to do their work.
1: To take risks, and, and innovation doesn't happen without risks.
2: That's right, and yeah. often innovation fails. Most experiments don't get the results that you want, but you don't want to pull your intellectual punches by being afraid to experiment and try and come up with that new process, that new theory, that deeper understanding of you know what it means to be a human being in today's world
0: does does academic freedom um, apply evenly across cases i mean let's say i'm i'm a, I'm a professor uh, and I've said something controversial about climate change in in my research um would there would i have the same level of protection if i taught this taught that that controversial statement in in one of my classes uh, what if they uh, what if i wanted to criticize the college's investment in fossil fuels um What if uh, we're just advocating for for position of a
2: private citizen? Sure. You know, different people approach this in different ways, and there is a great deal of litigation and case law, and I won't bore you by walking through all of it today, (laughs) but I would say that there are really four, for me, the best way of thinking about academic freedom is in four different domains. There is a domain in which faculty members are doing their scholarship, their research, or if they're a you know creative arts professor, they're composing or they're painting. Um, and that realm is different from the domain where a faculty member is in the classroom doing their teaching. That second domain probably leads to a third domain, which is when faculty members are engaged in intra university conversations about what the university is doing and what it should be doing. Mm -hmm. You know, everything from helping to decide who gets tenure to what the college's budget should look like. This is something that we would call shared governance within the academy. And then, of course, there is a fourth domain where faculty members are taking off their institutional hat and are being citizens, where, of course, they have views and opinions. I think that the freedom that they have, and mostly it is academic freedom, is different in each of these four domains. To my mind, the closer the domain is to the absolute core of what the institution is put on earth to achieve, what its mission is, the more the need for academic freedom grows, mm-hmm. the more the political and legal case law has been protective of their academic freedom, and that's exactly as it should be. So if I am doing research on climate change, and it may be the case that my research is going to grossly offend, you know, an oil company or maybe the state regulators or some politicians, Mm -hmm. that's the moment where you need the strongest academic freedom. And the case law is quite good in this domain. In the classroom, faculty also need a great deal of academic freedom. You know, faculty need to decide what subjects they're going to teach what books they're going to use in teaching that subject, what theoretical perspective to bring to the conversations in class. And so you need academic freedom to make some of those choices, although sometimes some of those choices are not made by an individual faculty member, but by a department or even the faculty as a whole. The decision about what the curriculum of Carleton or St. Olaf would be isn't made by one individual faculty member. The faculty votes together as a body after they've thrashed it out probably for years, okay? (laughs) Unless you're in a
0: public institution in Florida. Well, we'll talk about that (laughs) if you
2: want, right? Okay. Um, Ordinarily in a healthy institution, (laughs) the faculty are making those decisions together. But in the classroom, a faculty member does not have absolutely unfettered freedom to do anything they want. If I hire you to teach a course on Shakespeare, you can't go into your classroom and teach a course on astrology. Right. Okay? If I hire you to teach a course in the English department, you can't go into your classroom and be abusive of students, swearing at them, you know, you certainly can't sexually harass your students mm-hmm. in classroom. Mm-hmm. If I hire you as a faculty member and require all faculty to distribute student course evaluations at the end of the term to see how students feel about the teaching, you can't refuse to do that. Mm -hmm. So there's not quite as much freedom in the classroom, but on the things that really matter, the decisions about how your courses would be taught and what are the most important ideas to bring, absolutely the case law is pretty strong for faculty members there.
1: So just to to make the the distinction Rich brought up really clear— if, you know, it was somebody in environmental studies or, or the like, and they were teaching climate science, you know, clearly, you know, as long as you were teaching within the, you know, what, what your discipline sort of dictates, that's going to be protected. Absolutely. If you're in a comparative literature department, um, and you're teaching climate science, Maybe not so much.
2: Right. But if you're in a comparative literature class and you are talking about the way that race or class Mm -hmm. or gender have Mm -hmm. played out over time as seen in literature or what that reflects about society, absolutely protected by academic freedom and should be. And the case law is strong on this. When you move outside of the classroom Mm -hmm. into these sort of what I would call intra-institutional conversations about the school's budget, about what our admissions priorities should be then in addition to the individual academic freedom of faculty, institutional concerns, because there is also institutional academic freedom, Mm -hmm. begin to balance each other out and occasionally get in conflict with each other. Usually not. A healthy college or university and the strongest colleges and universities in this country are places that have recognized that faculty as the longest term citizens and the sort of soul of the institution ought to be given a really meaningful, substantive voice in debates about where the institution is going. You know, students come and go in four years. If we do our job right, they graduate in four years, right? Mm-hmm. Administrators often don't spend their whole career at a place, but faculty do. Yeah and because of that they have a special perspective a special knowledge and in some ways are the custodians of the values of the institution in a very real way and that's why you want their voices in the conversations about what the priorities of the institution should be you know do you need a faculty member's voice in debates about curriculum or about what the priority should be for spending whether you need to put more money in the library versus building a new you know I don't know, health center. Mm-hmm. Yes, okay. You probably don't need as much faculty input on the question about whether the university should, you know, seek a tax exemption for a particular property that it owns or contract with this food service company versus mm-hmm. another. But the more central it is to the core of the institution, faculty academic freedom would be recognized even in this intra-institutional debate. When you go outside the academy entirely, and I realize I'm giving you a very long answer to a very simple question, so I'll be quick here. (laughs) At this point, I really think conceptually it is less useful to think of a faculty member's speech rights on the streets of New York as academic freedom and more useful to think of this as First Amendment protected rights. Mm -hmm. And there, of course, like every other citizen's faculty members have a great deal to say, should be free to say it. The government could not interfere with that, but it's really less academic freedom when you're out in the broader world. Although even there, we do expect scholars to be public intellectuals. Mm -hmm. And when they speak as an intellectual about their topic, they would still be covered by academic freedom. When you're speaking about something that you just happen to care about as a citizen, you know, I am a scholar of physics, but I care deeply about voting rights or gun control. Mm -hmm. You're protected by the First Amendment, a little bit less by academic freedom at that point, because it's no longer you addressing subjects that are the core area of your expertise. Okay,
1: I guess the the case where it would become an academic freedom issue is if there was some sort of reprisal from your institution uh, for a public position you took. And if I'm understanding correctly, it really matters if I'm, as a political scientist, if I'm taking a position about politics, about the parties, etc., that would be within my area of expertise and import, you know, I would be able to offer commentary on that. But if I was offering commentary on some other topic that I didn't have expertise about, And it was maybe, you know, hurting my institution in some way uh, to have this public profile. Would would it be
2: okay or, you know, more acceptable? So, again, there may be differences between public and private institutions here. Mm -hmm. Because we care so much about people being boldly sharing their ideas, I would say... You should err on the side of interpreting the bounds of your discipline and your expertise pretty broadly. Mm-hmm. You know, we shouldn't be trying to confine that and limit faculty to you can only speak about 14th century English drama if that's what you teach. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't want people to be fearless, and I re- I want people to be fearless. Let me rephrase that. And I think it's really important as citizens that even if you're speaking on a topic where you're not a recognized expert. In public discourse, again, covered by the First Amendment, you are free to do that. And we want citizens Mm -hmm. to do that. Are there circumstances where a private institution might be offended by something that a faculty member said entirely in their capacity as a citizen and be able to discipline them for that? yes if their institutional policies and the contract that governs the relationship between the faculty member and the institution and the was very clear mm-hmm. on that point but unless it's absolutely clear that the institution is reserving the right mm-hmm. to do that then the institution shouldn't And I think it is a foolish institution that starts to very aggressively go after faculty members for public speech. There are circumstances under which it happens, but you better think real long and hard about whether or not in doing that you're potentially chilling academic freedom. Speaking as
0: a member of the media, um, we lean heavily on people like you guys. And in fact, Chris, you've got some experience with this, too. Uh, uh, There's a Carlton... i think he's retired now carlton college professor who has done extensive work with the minnesota news network and i get his sound bites uh quite often and uh um i I just as a member of me i appreciate the fact that, that, that 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 these folks are able to actually speak to the media in public in the public eye and explain a little bit of what's going on better than i could as a as a reporter and not have a lot of fear of um a lot, not have a lot of fear of, of reprisal, what they're saying.
2: Yeah, and I think that's consistent with the notion of public scholarship. Mm-hmm. You know, these AAUP documents that mm-hmm. Chris and I were talking about earlier begin to address this issue. You know, the the, the famous statement that they say here is that, uh, you know, college and university teachers are citizens, members of a learned profession, and officers of an educational institution. When they speak a right as citizens, they should be free from institutional censorship and discipline, but their special position in the community imposes special obligations. As scholars and educational officers, they should remember that the public may judge their profession and their institution by their utterances. Hence, they should at all times be accurate, should exercise appropriate restraint, and should show respect for the opinions of others and should make every effort to indicate that they're not speaking for their institution. Mm -hmm. Those types of Mm guidance rules are pretty good benchmarks, you know? I think if you follow that, you're gonna be in pretty great shape as a faculty member out there. But there are circumstances where people go beyond those rules, and there are some reasons why, in an extreme case, a college or university that legally has the right to do so, which would be more likely at a private institution than a public Mm -hmm. institution, might take some action against a faculty member for really damaging the institution by their public utterances.
1: Well, it's interesting because what I hear in that is the AUP urging faculty members to speak as citizens, but speak responsibly. Mm -hmm. Um, And one thing that was not around when that statement came out was social media. And so we have (laughs) these new kind of blurred, are you communicating as a private citizen? Sometimes with some social media platforms, there's maybe more of an expectation that the communication is private. Um, I imagine this might be one new frontier uh, in academic freedom uh, litigation and, and so forth. You would be correct. This is <laughs> one of the hot areas, I think,
2: of higher education law right now, particularly with regard to academic freedom. And, you know, at what point does a faculty member's ability to talk thoughtfully about their scholarship, even if it's going to tick someone off, change? I'll play law professor with you for a moment, okay? Mm -hmm. If I go in my classroom and I'm talking seriously about a discipline, but I have a provocative idea, as we've talked about, that should be covered by Academic Freedom. If I go outside of my classroom and I am giving the same speech at a conference of other academics, I think almost all of us would agree, and I think the courts would certainly agree as well, that that also should be covered by academic freedom. Mm -hmm. If I go beyond an academic conference and I publish in a scholarly journal an article that may annoy people, again, covered by academic freedom. If I write a long op-ed to the New York Times about this same issue, again, I am an expert on this topic, even if it offends folks, I would argue covered by academic freedom and also covered by the first amendment at this mm-hmm. point, okay? What if I put a 180 character tweet out there that is on the subject? Where's that fall? Okay, at some point you're starting to move into a realm where it isn't scholarly mm-hmm. anymore. You know, if Twitter is a medium in which, as opposed to a thoughtful, rational discussion of an idea, you're throwing something out there to provoke. You know, it's been distilled into such few words. I think there is an interesting argument that it's you have crossed a line into personal expression, which again is protected by the First Amendment, Mm -hmm. okay, but -hmm. probably isn't covered by academic freedom. You've got to go back always to what we spoke about earlier. What is the purpose of the discourse? Mm -hmm. What is the reason why you need academic freedom? If what you're putting on social media is not, in fact, designed to advance Discovery and knowledge and learning in a thoughtful, rational, inclusive conversation where everybody is invited to the table to share their ideas, but instead is meant just to provoke or to express outrage or venting, okay? That's really not serving an academic purpose. It may be serving a profoundly important and valued or necessary purpose First Amendment free expression Mm -hmm. purpose, Mm -hmm. but its claim to be covered by Mm -hmm. this separate doctrine of academic freedom is, to my mind, at some point, more tenuous. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I think it's really important always to be keeping in mind these different purposes, and also that the United States Supreme Court has never, ever recognized a constitutional right to academic freedom. The closest the court has ever come, Mm. is saying that academic freedom is is of special concern Mm. to the First Mm. Amendment or of transcendent value to us all because of the role the colleges and universities play. But there is no constitutional right to academic freedom. There may be a contractual right to it, Mm -hmm. and of course, there are powerful, Mm. powerful intellectual reasons why academic freedom is so precious and should be treasured, in my view. What about the students? Uh,
0: We've talked about the people who work for the colleges but but how does this apply to uh, the students at the at the institutions well you've got protests and you've got you know whatever you know it, it, social media um
2: <clears throat> does a student have any sort of expectation to academic freedom. Yes, they? they do, and they should. Okay? So I spoke earlier about how academic freedom in some ways is a transplanted concept from German universities where it was called Lernfreiheit. Okay? Lernfreiheit. And there is an analogous student academic freedom called Lernfreiheit that goes back to these same German universities. And it typically would mean that a student should have the freedom and the autonomy to study whatever they want to mm-hmm. study and to follow their intellectual inclinations wherever they might lead them. If you don't want to focus on history and you do want to focus on biology, you should be able to do that. You should be able to take courses from professors. And when you as a student write a paper in class or where you as a student speak in class, you should also be covered by academic freedom. Now, the question that I raised earlier about how close this is to the core of the academy, I think student academic freedom does pretty well in this. We're here for them, and they're here to learn. Mm-hmm. And they do need the intellectual autonomy to grow and question their own beliefs and you know, question their professors mm-hmm. on things. Mm-hmm. At some point, When you're not in the classroom or you're not doing scholarship, okay, Mm -hmm. it's really no longer academic freedom, but it may still be First Amendment protected rights to speak. You know, especially at a public university, if you're a student at the University of Wisconsin, your alma mater, right, Mm -hmm. students have the ability to speak out on issues because they are citizens the state of Wisconsin, and the government is not supposed to limit their speech. So student protest rights are probably less academic freedom, but absolutely protected by the First Amendment. And then the obvious question you're going to ask me is what happens at a private institution? Yep. in the same way that a private institution will have contractual obligations to faculty members and a faculty handbook mm-hmm. that would ensure a faculty member's right to speak Mm -hmm. they will also have policies and procedures that should guarantee a student's right to speak and to protest sometimes there might be you know constitutionally valid limits on the time and place and manner of when those protests take place Mm -hmm. but absolutely public institutions protected by the first amendment and also likely institutional policies private institutions student academic freedom protected again by public public policy Okay. You're listening to Public Policy This Week
0: on KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1, broadcasting from beautiful downtown Northfield, Minnesota. I'm Rich Larson. My co-host, Chris Chapp, and I are talking with Steve Poskanzer, the former president of Carleton College and an expert in legal issues in higher education. Okay, so we've got about 20 minutes left in the show, and, and the problem with doing shows like this is that we get an hour and generally we get to the real meat of some of these these, with you know 11 minutes left in the show so i'm going to try to uh, keep this uh, rolling a little bit stepping back um what is the state of academic freedom today it seems like we're hearing about controversies on 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 a college campus nearly a weekly basis and i I just i brought up florida Uh, earlier this week florida governor ron DeSantis signed a bill restricting what teachers at public universities in florida can teach President Poskanzer, what is your view on the state of academic freedom
2: in higher ed? I'm worried about the state of academic freedom in higher ed right now, especially right now at public universities across the country. Now, it's important to remember that public universities are fundamentally democratic institutions. Mm -hmm. The state establishes them. The state governs them through an electoral and a point of process. The state is the ultimate repository of Responsibility for that institution, mm-hmm. and ordinarily in american higher education it 's the board of trustees or the Board of Regents who ultimately make the decision about what the university should look like mm-hmm. again, a wisely governed university, a board of trustees doesn 't make those decisions without really careful consideration of faculty and other stakeholders who have mm-hmm. themselves deeply entrenched interests and a vested you know mm-hmm. a commitment to the success of the institution. But legally, it is certainly correct that a, again, depending on the law of the state, but typically a governor would make appointments to the board of trustees. They might be approved by the state senator or the state representatives. But once appointed, those trustees have a fiduciary institution for the institution, and legally they can make decisions about firing the president, granting tenure to faculty members, mm-hmm. what the institution is going to look like. So it is legal for a board of trustees to make decisions that might move an institution in a dramatic way. Mm -hmm. It is legal for a state legislature to pass laws saying our state dollars are only going to be used for a particular purpose. Whether something is legal is profoundly different from the question about whether it is wise or whether it is consonant with how you build a great university, Mm -hmm. how you provide a great education to students. And we are seeing in a number of states right now proposed or actually passed legislation that limit – the freedom and the ability of institutions and faculty at them, Mm -hmm. and students at them, quite frankly, to explore ideas, to study, to go where their minds tell them we need to go to understand things better. In the long run, that is very dangerous to Mm -hmm. institutions. It is a great way to take an excellent academic institution and turn it into a third-rate place that isn't worthy of the name of university. Um, And I think we are starting to see some fights like that going on.
1: You said legal is different than wise, but legally do faculty, students, et cetera,
2: just citizens um, in some of these states have any recourse? Um, They most certainly do. Okay. And again, I'm going to start with public institutions because Mm -hmm. that's what we're more concerned Mm -hmm. with. Mm -hmm. You know, there are contractual commitments that a university has made to a faculty member. And so if you are punished Mm -hmm. for your speech as a faculty member, okay, you have a breach of contract claim, and if it's a public institution, you have a First Amendment claim, Mm -hmm. okay? That's sort of looking backwards, okay? Can an institution pass laws or regulations that would limit what you might say going forward? Even there, there are limits on this. The first piece of legislation that was passed in Florida, which is being litigated in the courts right now, would limit the teaching of particular ideas Mm -hmm. on college campuses. And that has been challenged by faculty members under the First Amendment. And the district court in Florida has issued an injunction limiting the enforcement of this law. Right now, Mm -hmm. while this case still plays itself out, Mm -hmm. I think there is a very strong argument to be made that a state actor that would be the University of Florida in this case, that is limiting the ability of a faculty member to express ideas that are germane to their subject, that are clearly, you know, thoughtful, rational things offered in the classroom for the purpose that they have been hired. That they have again protections under the First Amendment, and also perhaps protections under their faculty handbook mm-hmm. that would let them prevail in that lawsuit. Okay.
1: Debates about academic freedom are, are often defined by the really tough cases, um, and in the past year, we've the seen interesting
2: a of... cases are the tough cases. <laughs> the interesting <laughs> cases, yeah.
1: Good, good classroom discussion. Um, in in the past year, we've seen a number of controversies, often framed. As a tension between the diversity goals <clears throat> in- inclusivity goals uh, of of the academy and the right of professors to say whatever they they need to say um, so long as it's advancing the pedagogical goals of the class consistent with with uh, good rigorous research etc um, and, and I've heard uh, a lot of schools of thought here. Um, uh, some folks see this sort of this claim that there's a tension between, say, diversity and academic freedom and and point out that, in fact, the privilege to practice academic freedom is one reason equity and inclusion has advanced as far as it has in the in the academic community. And so we might even see this as like a partner's hypothesis that that academic freedom and inclusivity are really partners. At the same time, there's a couple cases uh, where where this tension seems to emerge A student might claim um that there's been some sort of harm uh and and that the professor's teaching was was inappropriate um could you help give us some guidance to walk through uh these these really thorny issues
2: sure you know i think i would probably subscribe to the what you were articulating as a partner's thesis i think for the most part there is great Overlap and consistency between the goals of equity and inclusion and diversity on campuses and academic freedom, you know, to really discover the truth, to really learn, you need to be exposed to as many ideas, perspectives, alternative ways of thinking as possible. Some of them will prove to be worthwhile. Most of them will not. Okay? <coughs> but it is through academic freedom that is enhanced by the multitude of different voices and people feeling free and comfortable and able to express their thoughtful views on ideas that learning and true knowledge and our understanding of what is, in fact, correct or true grows. So I see a lot of consonants between those two. But certainly there can be circumstances where, you know, a scholar or student's academic freedom to pursue or articulate whatever idea they think is right or necessary to be explored could make people feel uncomfortable or not included. I like to think of different types of safety in college and university campuses. I like at least it helps me to think of a difference between physical safety and intellectual safety and emotional safety and let me explain what I mean by each of those. To me, physical safety is uh, is obvious. You know, you go to a college or university, you should not be living in fear of being murdered or sexually assaulted, and colleges and universities have a responsibility as much as they can to Mm -hmm. keep community members, especially students, Mm -hmm. physically safe. I would contrast that with intellectual safety. I think by their very nature, as we've been talking about today, colleges and universities are intellectually unsafe or intellectually dangerous places. We are in the business of floating ideas that disrupt Mm. the world, Mm -hmm. and that's how the world progresses. You know, um, we don't live in a world where people drive horse-drawn wagons with buggy (laughs) buggy whips. We live in a tech-driven world now, and that's because of ideas that have come out of colleges and universities. We are in the business of challenging accepted verities because sometimes the truth isn't what you think it is. Mm -hmm. So you shouldn't be safe in that way. But you need to have a requisite at some level of of feeling emotionally safe on a college university campus to be part of those conversations. If you think that every time you open your mouth or every time you walk across the campus, people think you don't belong there, Mm -hmm. you're not gonna be a full partner in that conversation, that Mm -hmm. robust, unsafe, dangerous conversation about ideas. So we need to pay attention to making sure that people feel able and ready to be part of those ideas, but not to the extent that you are dialing back your fearless discussion of where the ideas are going to lead you, okay? I really think it's critical that students be invited and valued and included Mm -hmm. in the conversation, and we have much work to do in that regard on many college campuses. But that doesn't mean that topics are off the table for discussion. It doesn't mean that ideas, unpopular ideas, should not be broached. It just means that there are smart and thoughtful ways to do that, and unwise ways to do that. And we need to be smart and thoughtful about how we do it without backing off from our fierce commitment to academic freedom and the honest exploration of whatever ideas on the table.
1: Yeah. A lot of this seems to go back to what we were talking about in that AUP statement uh, Mm -hmm. about what it means to be sort of a responsible practitioner of academic freedom. And and also I would add a a skilled teacher. Um, Everything that you just said makes a ton of sense. Um, but I do think it, you know, it takes a level of skill to um, challenge students intellectually, um, to shake them up intellectually. But um, that's our job. Yeah, okay? absolutely. And it, I it,
2: don't want us being fearful of doing our job for fear of rattling or offending right. a student. Okay, if you make a mistake as a teacher, then we'll correct for the mistake. But the biggest mistake of all would be pulling your punches pedagogically and intellectually, not going where you really think that is your that's your holy responsibility as a teacher, whether you're at a public institution or private institution. We should do that job bravely and well.
0: As a non-academic, I want to uh, give a full throated support to that. What you just said, uh, if I, yeah, I send my kids, my two kids to, to college. Part of the reason I wanted them to go to school was I wanted their belief, the beliefs that I had raised them with, right? I wanted those beliefs to be challenged and I wanted their, I, you know, and, and I wanted them to get rattled a little bit and, and to shake them up because you've got to, you know, as as a student, you have to take all these things that you've been taught, but you have to internalize it and you have to make it your own and you have to defend yourself. Sometimes that's just how the real world works.
2: And if nothing else, we are preparing our our kids to get out into the quote-unquote real world. Well, you can't defend your ideas unless they have been honed in practice with ideas that maybe are in opposition to yours. You know, it's a really brave and a really lovely thing that American society has chosen to value and nurture and support colleges and universities that play this role Mm -hmm. in society. You know, this is why it is. Colleges and universities are part of a healthy democracy. Mm -hmm. To have an institution that comes up with ideas that disrupt existing industries, you know, drive them out of business, okay, Mm -hmm. that come up with new ideas about politics and social life that may, again, disrupt Mm -hmm. conventional ways of thinking is risky and dangerous, And yet the value proven again and again and again over hundreds of years, not just in this country, but in, you know, with the Sorbonne in France or the University of Bologna, which has been around since the 12th century. These are valuable institutions because they lead in the long run to a healthy, vibrant society, even though they may create some complications in the short run. So insofar as that tension does
0: exist, um, you know, at least rear its head, um, what can colleges do? To minimize the f- the fallout, I'm, I know I'm sort of speaking against myself here, but but how do we responsibly manage a case where a student has experienced some sort of harm, uh, but a professor feels that they, they need to teach the material?
2: We should be talking mm-hmm. about the value of academic freedom and the necessity of freewheeling, but sometimes painful intellectual exchange mm-hmm. right from day one. Even before day one, students should come to college knowing that this is what college is like. They should come to college wanting this. Professors should understand that students come to college wanting this, but maybe don't yet have the skills or the self-awareness or the ability yet to really engage in this type of dialogue, Mm that it may be disconcerting. So we should be teaching those skills, and we should be talking about why they're important, and we should also be exhibiting towards each other a certain level of grace that sometimes is not present. People are going to make mistakes Okay, they're going to say something that's going to unintentionally offend someone else. But if they're saying that as part of an honest effort to try and figure out where we're going, then there should be a little measure of forgiveness. You know, whether a student says that, whether a faculty member says that. Again, this goes back, as I said earlier in our conversation today, to what's the purpose of academic freedom? Mm -hmm. You know, the purpose of political discourse is to convince others that you're right. Mm -hmm. Okay, to win an election. OK, to have your side prevail. The purpose of academic freedom is to get a better understanding of the truth of the world. OK, sometimes truth feels very provisional. Sometimes it isn't. Two plus two is four. Yes. OK, but, you know, you need to create an environment where students and faculty and librarians and staff members you know, are all joined together in this effort to learn more and to discover how our world really works and what it means to be human in this world. Mm -hmm. And that endeavor requires academic freedom. It requires some intellectual bravery. It requires getting roughed up a little bit on ideas, Mm -hmm. but it's about ideas. It's not about who you are as a person and trying to the extent one can Mm -hmm. to keep those two things separate as we go forward is a healthy way.
0: Sure. Uh,
2: With, with, just about five
0: minutes left in the show. Uh, I'm going to go off script a little bit here. We always like to, to give our our, our guest the last word uh, on this show. And I just would, is there anything that we haven't talked about, Steve, that maybe uh, should be mentioned in, in uh, this conversation?
2: Boy, I think the two of you have done a great job fleshing out all the importance of this. You know, I guess, and I worry, I've been pontificating too much in the show at this point. I guess the one thing I would say is... Colleges and universities are really fragile institutions. Mm -hmm. It takes decades, centuries, okay, to build up a great university Mm -hmm. or a great college. It's much easier to destroy places like this. And I think we are in a moment where we should be thinking thoughtfully about, you know, if colleges and universities aren't fulfilling their functions the best way, then let's talk honestly about how they can do a better job about doing that. But turning them into political whipping boys to score cheap points Mm -hmm. um, or just damaging the ability of teachers to teach and scholars to pursue ideas, we should be very mindful of the long-term consequences of doing that. Uh, A nation that really starts to tear at its own intellectual capital is the poor nation for it and right now the united states still continues to have the greatest higher education system in the world there's a reason why people from all around the globe come to study in the u.s Mm -hmm. it would be very sad if we walked away from that indeed and now i will climb off my high horse (laughs) (laughs) your Hyde park park
0: soapbox yeah there it is
1: well, uh, thank you so much. Uh, we learned uh, a ton from you, and, and as a as a professor, uh, it's great to hear these words as well. Um, on next Friday's edition of Public Policy this week, uh, Nathan Leaf and I are
0: going to talk to and the, the names escape me, but we are going to talk about the uh, uh, the organization that is working to bring um, well, the World Expo to uh, to the Twin Cities. It's uh, it's going to be a really interesting uh, conversation. I'm looking forward to it. So. Well, uh, Stephen Poskanser, thank you so much for being here. Chris Chapp, thank you for doing all the work on this show. We do appreciate (laughs) appreciate you putting it all together. And, folks, thank you for listening. uh, And we hope that you have a uh, fantastic rest of your Friday and a superb weekend. Take care. You've been listening to Public Policy This Week. Tune in every Friday morning at 10 a.m. for more conversation with policy experts. Remember, this show can be found on your favorite
2: podcast platform or stream it from KYMNradio.net.